I remember when I was at uni, I uh, very unceremoniously uh, quit a job. And by quit, I mean, like, I just didn't turn up to my shift. Uh, I didn't message. I didn't call. I, I just never returned. I just completely ghosted them. Has anyone ever quit a job like that? Just... Oh, it's, I'm the only one. I'm sure that there's someone out there who has done that. Anyway, but, but the problem was that, that put me in a really tricky situation because this cafe that I just ghosted, uh, it was at a kind of like a small set of shops quite close to the university that I was studying at. And it was the place where my friends and I used to go and hang out between classes or stop on the way home. But I had this problem because I never wanted to go back to that set of shops again. And so every time, like, uni would break up for the day, the guy's like, yeah, let's go get a, a burger, let's go get some uh, coffee or whatever. And I'd always have to come up with some reason why I wasn't going to join them, some reason to avoid going back to that shop. Uh, so I've got work to do, or I've got, I've got to get home and take the dog for a walk, or no, I've got, a, I've got a doctor's appointment. I just have to come up with some reason why I didn't go back to those shops so I could avoid uh, going anywhere near that cafe ever again. We can go to great lengths, can't we, to avoid things we don't like. Uh, we can go to great lengths to avoid uncomfortable situations or even to dodge certain topics. We will have relationships where there's a certain topic of conversation that is off limits uh, and we'll do everything we can to avoid the awkwardness. I want to ask you, do you feel that way about the judgment of God? Do you feel that way about the judgment of God? We'll do anything to get out of talking about it? Will you do anything to get out of even having to think about it and what its implications might be? Will you do anything to get out of um, people thinking that you might be someone who, who believes that it's real and that it has uh, consequences for them and their lives? I mean, we might feel like we've got good reasons for avoiding talking, thinking, uh, sharing news of the judgment of God. I mean, really, it's so offensive, isn't it? Like, it's that, 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 that there might be uh, a big man in the sky who's going to come down and tell people that they're wrong and then punish them for it. That's pretty offensive. It's pretty personal. Often when people think about the judgment of God, they think about God's judgment in relation to some of the most personal things about us as, 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 as humans. It's pretty old-fashioned. Uh, it's kind of like what, you know, what people kind of did in the olden days, but we don't really talk about judgment anymore. I mean, one of the reasons we don't like talking about the judgment of God is because it's just so judgmental, right? It's just, it's not cool to go around telling people there's a God who's going to judge the world. It's not cool to go around telling people that there's consequences for our actions. It's not the good news that we want to be known for, is it, as followers of Jesus? So we, we avoid talking about it. We avoid thinking about it. But here in Daniel chapter 5, one of the things we see clearly in Daniel chapter 5 is that the judgment of God is unavoidable. It's unavoidable. Even for the most powerful, for the most rich, for the most famous person in the world, God's judgment is unavoidable. But the other thing we see here in Daniel chapter 5 is that God's judgment is surprisingly, surprisingly, it's good news. And you have to bear with me on that one. I'll explain a little bit later. Uh, come with me to Daniel chapter 5. Uh, now, if you've been following uh, with us through our, our series in Daniel, uh, there's a bit of time that passes between Daniel chapter 4 and Daniel chapter 5. Uh, it's actually probably been quite a few decades of time that have passed by. Quite a few kings of Babylon have come and gone, uh, and the people of God still find themselves in exile. 
Uh, and just to let you know, uh, Daniel chapter 5 will talk about uh, Belshazzar as like the, the son of Nebuchadnezzar or that Nebuchadnezzar is the, is the father of Belshazzar. Uh, but if you've got the Bible there, there's a little footnote that tells you that uh, rather than father, it's more like ancestor or predecessor. Uh, so Nebuchadnezzar is more like his grandfather or his great-grandfather quite a few generations back. Uh, and so uh, that's what's going on there. But there's this new ruler called Belshazzar on the throne, says Daniel chapter 5. Uh, but before we go any further, this is actually a really uh, popular stomping ground for people who want to discredit the authority of the Bible. People want to say that the Bible doesn't line up with history. Uh, they used to say, you know, if you, if you look outside of the Bible, there is no historical evidence for a King Belshazzar of Babylon. He's not on, no, they have lists of all, the, of all the Babylonian kings in order, and there's no King Belshazzar on any of those lists. And so they say, you guys just made that up. Like The whole Bible, it's all just made up. It's not true. And you know what? They're right. Well, they're right about the fact that Belshazzar is not on any of the king's list, because he isn't. Now, you can go to museums and there's lists of kings and there's no King Belshazzar. That's until 1861, where they found this. The Nabonidus Cylinder. Do we have the picture? There we go. They found this. They dug it up in 1861. Uh, now it resides in the British Museum. Uh, don't ask how it got there or whether it belongs there. <laughs> Apparently the British Museum doesn't like people thinking too hard about that. Uh, but they found the cylinder and you'll never guess what it mentions or who it mentions. See, it talks about this well-known king of Babylon, Nabonidus, and it tells us that when he was away fighting enemies abroad, he would leave his son in charge, his son named Belshazzar. He made his son co-regent, a co-ruler of the empire in his place. And that's exactly what we see here in Daniel chapter 5. And if you see what happened with Belshazzar, you can see why maybe they left him off the list, right? He maybe wasn't the sort of king that you wanted to remember as you, as you chronicled the, your, your wonderful Babylonian empire. Anyway, here we have... Uh, Belshazzar, dad is away fighting the Egyptians and Belshazzar is left to look after the house all on his own. And, you know, like most young men, given free reign of the house, dad's away, he gets a few mates over. Uh, firstly, despite what dad said about just having a few mates over, how many does he have? Verse, verse 1, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. This is a massive party, thousands of guests. Uh, he's got them there and he's kind of, kind, of, kind of trying to chum up to them, trying to get them to, to love him and to adore him. And so he raids dad's cellar for, and, and, and uh, he's, he's, he's sharing dad's best food. Uh, the second thing we know from history is that uh, at the time of King Belshazzar, there's another army that's encamped just outside of Babylon, the Persians. They're pretty much knocking at the door. Uh, the gates of Babylon are about to be attacked by the Persians. And so it seems that kind of Belshazzar and his mates, they're there drinking the night away. They're kind of drowning their sorrows. Uh, they know that tomorrow things are going to get ugly, so they're having a good time while they can. But in really, they should be preparing for battle. They should be sharpening their swords. But instead, they're getting on the bottle. And uh, this chapter, it's a bit of deja vu. I, if you've been working through Daniel with us, you'd, you'd be forgiven for thinking, I've seen this movie before, because um, uh, the same things happen again as it happened in chapter 2 and chapter 4. A king has a vision, 
the king's stressed out about his vision. No one can tell the king what the vision means. Someone thinks we should ask Daniel. Daniel comes in, interprets the dream, and is richly rewarded. We've seen this twice already in the book of Daniel. It's the same pattern. Uh, It's pretty much a rerun. And the main point is the same as well. The main point is, no matter how great you think you are, O king, God is the one who rules. God is the one who sits on the throne. And so it's a bit of a rerun, but where the previous king got into trouble because he had a big ego, Belshazzar gets into trouble because he's a bit more deliberate. You see, Belshazzar, he willingly and intentionally provokes God. He kind of gives God the finger. He kind of kicks God in the guts. And he, and he tries to dance on God's grave. You see, uh, Belshazzar does three things. He mocks God, he ignores God, and he defies God. He begins by mocking God. He, he deliberately attempts to, to ridicule the God of the exiles. Have a look at verse 2 with me. Verse 2, while Belshazzar was drinking wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and the silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father or his ancestor, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. So that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Uh, Now, uh, Belshazzar, he's not just handing around kind of pizza and beer to his mates. They've raided the temple. Uh, They've taken sacred items out of the temple. Uh, Now, even by Babylonian standards, this is poor form. Uh, Even by Babylonian standards, this was not the done thing. See, back in the days when when the Babylonians conquered another country, uh, they generally did two things. They either kind of flattened the whole place, wiped it off the face of the earth, or they pillaged it. They kind of left everything remaining, but they they took the sacred and valuable things. Uh, They took the things particularly that belonged to the God of that nation, and they took them back to their own temple. And they set them up in their own temple. And they were set up there like trophies on the shelf to prove that they and their God had defeated those people and their God. But they would consider the trophies themselves to be somewhat special and somewhat sacred, not things to be messed with. You kind of wouldn't go out of your way to antagonise another nation's gods. But for Belshazzar, uh, for him to get out these sacred items taken from the temple in Jerusalem, for him to then use them in his wild party, and, and then even further, to use them to toast other gods, well, even for Babylonians, that wasn't on. Even for Babylonians, that crossed the line that they would usually never cross. Uh, a few years back, I was at a cricket game, uh, and a guy sitting right in front of me uh, started making racist comments about the opposing team. Now, in banter, in sport, there's lots of things that get said that might be you know, unpleasant uh, or a little bit unkind, but kind of within the realms of sport banter, they're kind of acceptable. Uh, but this was clearly not. Uh, even his mates, who had kind of had a few too many cans, they, they were aware enough of what had been said to, to rebuke him, to tell him to pull his head in to say, you've taken things too far. And that's Belshazzar. He's, he's, he's gone too far. Uh, he's crossed a line as he mocks the God of Israel, as he mocks the sovereign Lord. And so, as a consequence, the judgment of God is scrawled across the wall. Verse 5, suddenly, a fingers, suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote in the plaster on the wall, near the lampstand, the royal place. The king watched the hand as it wrote. Now this disembodied finger appears and it's writing this cryptic message on the wall and you know that's probably a great way to kill the party. Uh, you can imagine kind of the music stopping, kind of 
and the lights kind of come on uh, and then everyone starts edging away and they all, look at, they all look at this young king and he's an absolute mess. Uh, not because of what he's eaten and drunk, and he's an absolute mess because he's falling apart at the seams. We'll come back to that later. Uh, but he has mocked God and he will not get away with it. Uh, now, what happens here uh, is that uh, it's the usual routine, like I said, from chapters 2 and chapter 4. The wise men of Babylon come in, uh, but again, they fail the king. Uh, and then the queen, likely Belshazzar's mum, uh, she remembers something from when she was a little girl. Uh, and she remembers this, verse 10. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Do not be alarmed. Do not look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, or in the time of your ancestor, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. And so Daniel is called in. He's probably an old man. He's probably coming in with like a walking frame. They've, they've retrieved him from the Babylonian retirement village. Uh, but he comes in and he's able to do what he did before. He's able to explain the writing to the king. And as he does it, he actually, you know, like a lot of old people do, he gives a little bit of a history lesson. He tells a bit of a story as he explains what the vision means. Uh, he tells him about what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar, his, his great-grandfather, a few decades earlier. He tells Belshazzar how... Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was a proud man and how God humbled him and sent him out to be with the wild animals. And he reminds Belshazzar that Nebuchadnezzar was only restored when he acknowledged that, that God was really the one who ruled, that God was the one who was sovereign over all. But Daniel's giving a history lesson here that he didn't need to give. Look at verse 22 there. Verse 22, what does it say? He says, But you, his son... O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Though you knew all this. What's the problem? Well, not only has Belshazzar mocked God by desecrating the objects of the temple, Daniel is telling him that he's also ignored God. You see, Belshazzar knew about God's work uh, in humbling his great-grandfather Nebuchadnezzar. He knew what had happened before, and yet he ignored him anyway. Now, in our experience, that's a little bit more common, isn't it? We might know a few people who are kind of hot-headed and they openly mock God, uh, but we know hundreds of people who just ignore God altogether. Uh, maybe they used to go to church. Maybe they were part of your youth group. Uh, maybe uh, they've already had a Christian friend explain the good news of Jesus to them. Maybe they've had like a really rough time and they've hit rock bottom and they've picked up a Bible to try and find some answers at some point in their life. But then they just moved on and they've ignored God. That's Belshazzar. He mocked God. He's ignoring God. And now finally, the third thing he does is he defies God. Have a look there at verse 23. Verse 23, this is Daniel speaking to Belshazzar. He says, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines drank from them. You praised the gods of, gold, the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood and stone, which cannot see, 
hear or understand. But you did not honour the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Belshazzar, Daniel says, he set himself up against God. He's defying God. He's taking what belongs to God and he is using it to praise gods that do not even exist. He's mocked God, he's ignored God, and now he defies God. Um, I know that a lot of you don't have children, but I'll let you, I'll let you know that Belshazzar is actually going through uh, what is a pretty normal strategy for a disobedient child. Uh, you tell a kid to do something, and they kind of, at first, they're kind of cheeky and disrespectful, uh, and then you remind them again, and then they pretend they don't hear. You know, the mock, and then the ignore. And then most serious of all, they'll turn around and they look you in the eye and they just say, no, they defy you. He is behaving like a child. But the problem with Belshazzar here is that he is playing a game that he simply cannot win. And we've seen it time and time again in the book of Daniel, haven't we? Nebuchadnezzar tried this with disastrous results and now Belshazzar is heading down the same road. He mocks, he ignores, he defies the God of the universe. He's provoking God's righteous judgment and he's about to get what's coming to him and it's unavoidable. You know, as the saying goes, and it comes from this passage, the writing is on the wall. The enemy is at the gates. The party is in full swing. They're eating, drinking, they're being merry, but judgment stands for Belshazzar. And see, when that writing on the wall appears, when that finger begins to write something in the wall, have a look there in verse 5. Have a look at how Belshazzar handles this. Uh, Verse 5, suddenly the finger of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace, wherever that was. Uh, The king watched the hand as it wrote. Uh, His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. See, right as Belshazzar kind of pokes God in the eye, judgment is announced. And it's scribbled across the wall. And Belshazzar was so terrified uh, that he quite literally poos his pants. Uh, It's obscured in our English because we shouldn't make toilet jokes at church, someone thought. Uh, But verse 6, where it says, like, his legs gave way, in the original, this is what it says in the original. In the original it says, his pelvic knots were released. His bowels were opened. Literally, he is so terrified, Belshazzar, that he has crapped his dax. Now, we keep telling our kids to not make toilet jokes, and we should have the same word to the writer of Daniel to stop making them as well, because the king's humiliation is so complete, there is a whole series of puns that run through the rest of the chapter, which ridicule the king about the loosening of his bowels. See, there's a bunch of references throughout the chapter, that that, that all kind of riff on the idea of the loosening of knots. And one of them is from verse 12, the queen. Uh, The queen refers to Daniel as one who can loosen knots, as in like a way of explaining riddles. Uh, Her choice of words are an obvious dig at the king. An obvious dig at the king who she's probably a little bit upset because of the mess he made on her favourite rug. Uh, But when faced with the judgement of God... When he realised that he's mocked God, that he's ignored God, that he's defied God, and that God's actually going to do something about it, 
when Belshazzar realised that he's not going to get away with it, well, he's completely humiliated. He brought all these people in to, to puff him up, to see how great and wonderful and, and, and impressive and generous he was. And now he's become the object of scorn. He's the, the butt of jokes. Uh, even before his judgment comes, he is robbed of all his majesty and honour. He thinks he can control great armies. He thinks he can control, he can throw great, great parties. He's got all the nobles toasting him. But in the face of God's searching judgment, he can't even control his bowels. And he's supposed to look like a completely pathetic figure. But what is the judgment that is written on the wall? Verse 25, Daniel tells us what it means. Verse 25, this is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. This is what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and it will be brought to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. God is saying to Belshazzar, you have been tested and you have failed. And now you'll be deposed and, your, and my judgment has come upon you. And that's exactly what happened. Verse 30, the very, that very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Babylonians, was slain. So what's the message of this chapter for us? For you, for me? Well, it's not complicated. Uh, this chapter, it continues to play out what we've seen time and time again in the book of Daniel. It continues to remind us that there is only one king and he does not sit on the throne in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was taught this lesson, now Belshazzar is taught this lesson and so we are being reminded again and again that every king that lines up against God's will eventually comes crashing down. And every kingdom which sets itself up in opposition to God will come crashing down. And every individual who refuses to acknowledge that God is king will go the same way. It's so clear in this chapter that God is the one who judges that God is the one that we will be answerable to in the end. And we may mock him, and we may ignore him, and we may defy him, but we actually do it at our peril. Daniel chapter 5 is warning us that God's judgment is real. Yes, God continues to be faithful and bless his servant Daniel. That is true from Daniel chapter 5. Yes, God continues to rule over foreign kingdoms despite the fact that his people are in exile. Yes, God is the giver of wisdom and the one who is powerful. But this chapter is telling us that the writing is on the wall. And it's not just for Middle Eastern kings. No, the writing is on the wall for all of us. We mock God when we, we take the things that belong to God and, and we use those things to honour ourselves. You, know, you might boast in your, um, your, your career or your course or your, your good standing or all your friends or, or the wealth that God has given you. You might take that and use it to honour yourself rather than honour God. You might take those things and use them for your will rather than devoting them to his will. And we ignore God. We come week in and week out here and we hear God's word preached. Uh, we hear God's word at, at, at community group during the week. And then we walk out the doors unchanged and unmoved and unrepentant. And we defy God. 
Not only do we ignore his word, but we're tempted to dismiss it completely. We say, oh, these words, they don't apply to me. Or, or, or what God says about this part of my life, that's actually not good. Or it's not, it's not good for my flourishing. Or we just hear God's word and we just say, no, I'm not doing it. And because of this, the writing is on the wall. Like Belshazzar, we might try and avoid it for as long as possible. But God's judgment is unavoidable. We might want to avoid thinking about it. We might want to avoid speaking about it. And that's understandable. The righteous judgment of God, it gets a pretty bad rap. Uh, there are churches and there are Christians who never speak about it. Uh, there, there are people who will never warn others about it. But I want to say that avoiding the judgment of God means that you're missing out on the good news of God's judgment as well. There is good news in the judgment of God. I don't know if you ever thought about that. How can, how can there be good news in the judgment of God? Well, one thing it means is that it means that God's righteous judgment means that he won't let sin go unpunished. Now, that's a two-edged sword there, right? But uh, if you're someone who has been sinned against, that is good news. If you're someone who has been hurt or abused or treated unfairly and there is no human way that you can see that justice will ever be served where the person who did it got away with it and they're not likely to ever be caught for it if that has happened to you then the judgment of God is good news justice will come even for what hasn't been punished in this world I mean, so often our, our attempts at human justice are so inadequate, aren't they? How do you punish a man like Hitler? How can there be vindication for people who've been abused, sometimes in the most private and horrific ways? Where's the justice for those whose lives are completely ruined because of the greed and selfishness of others? Uh, when I said those words this morning, I happened to look at someone directly in morning church and that person had their husband walk out on them after abusing them for many years. Their husband, who is a multi, multi, multi millionaire. And in her culture, in the country that she came from, she's left with nothing. No hope of justice, no hope of reconciliation, no hope of even a crumb from his table to get on with the rest of her life. It's a great comfort to her that God will bring justice in the end. Sometimes our only hope for true and complete justice can be found only in the judgment of God, knowing that he will not let sin, any sin go unpunished. Uh, but if you're sitting there and you're feeling the weight of your sin, if you're feeling the impending doom of the judgment of God, the good news of God's judgment is also that there is a rescue available in Jesus. For those who hear the alarm, for those who see the writing on the wall, for those who see their sin and repent and return to God, there is rescue in Jesus. There is rescue in Jesus because Jesus takes the judgment of God for those who trust in him. And he does it because he loves us. Because he loves you. 
Uh, in 1 John chapter 4, we, we see the rescue of judgment that God brings. Uh, it reads this in 1 John chapter 4. It says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. John will go on in a few more verses to say this. He says, And this is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. You see, judgment is real. We ne- it's necessary. We need the justice that, that it brings. Uh, and for those of us who trust and follow Jesus, judgment has already come. It was dealt with by Jesus on the cross as he died in your place, as his blood was spilt for you, because God loves you. Uh, Now, finally, uh, for those of us who trust in Jesus, how does the judgment of God shape how we live? Uh, I think there's three things we need to uh, take away here. The first is, I think it it means that we should take life seriously. Uh, I think Belshazzar is a classic example of someone who who appears to think that life is just one big joke. Uh, He doesn't care about rules or conventions. He doesn't seem overly bothered by the fact that the Persians are about to invade and take over his kingdom on the very next day. He's kind of the embodiment of kind of, we eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. That's kind of his motto to life. But this chapter shows how utterly foolish that is. How empty, how vacuous that is as a way to live. I mean, if life was meaningless, sure, fine. Eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow you die. But life is not meaningless. Life is going somewhere. We can't just say she'll be right and and hope for the best. Daniel chapter 5 says, Hear the warning, be ready for the day. Take the warning seriously. We need to take life seriously. It doesn't mean to walk around with a serious face and we can't have any fun. But we need to take this warning seriously. We can't shrug it off. We also need to feel the sense of urgency. If this judgment of God is real, then we need to have a sense of urgency about it. And now, I don't know about you, but I'm I'm a a classic procrastinator. Uh, I've never been good at getting stuff done ahead of time. Uh, My whole life of study, primary school, high school, uh, a university degree, and then theological college, like, uh, that was a lot of study. In that whole time, I only once handed in an essay early. Uh, Usually... It was kind of all done on the last, uh, in the last day, in the last few minutes. Uh, when the, see, I'm just a procrastinator. Like, you know, uh, but when the deadline is coming, when the pressure is on, I was always amazed at how, how quickly I could just kind of snap to it and get it done. Uh, I also, in that whole time, never handed an essay in late. So there you go. Um, it's amazing how a sense of urgency can crystallise our priorities. It can sharpen our focus. Now, I don't think it means that we ought to kind of run around life in like a blind panic. A sense that we, we only have one life and that we're determined not to waste it. And if the judgment of God is real and if the judgment of God is really coming, there is no more important thing than we can do than to be prepared and to help others to be prepared. And so don't shy away from difficult conversations. Uh, Knowing the judgment of God is coming helps us just get on with it, helps us to have a sense of urgency. There is a time, a day that is coming 
And so we need to be preparing ourselves and others for that right now. Uh, the last thing I think this means for us as we live as followers of Jesus is that we can approach the future with confidence. Uh, if we believe that Jesus is our judge, uh, not only will we be serious, not only will we have a sense of urgency, but we can live confidently. Uh, we can be confident about our future uh, and the future of our world. Uh, we can be confident not because we think we're perfect or we're good people. Uh, we can be confident not because we're kind of smug, self-righteous, religious types, and so God will be our friend just because of that. We can be confident because our future... And the future of our universe is in the hands of someone that we know. It's in the hands of someone who is utterly trustworthy. It's in the hands of someone who loves us. It's in the hands of someone who has already taken the punishment for the sin that we deserve. And so when we put it like that, it's clear we don't need to be scared of his judgment. We don't need to avoid the subject of God's judgment. We can live confident and secure that justice will come and that the one who judges has already saved all of those who trust in him. I'm just going to finish with these words from 1 John 4 again. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the good news of your judgment. That there will be a day where those who have sinned against us and sinned against you or even sinned against the most vulnerable people in the world. There will be a day where they will be brought to justice. And Lord, we thank you that your judgment has not fallen on us if we trust in Jesus, but it has been taken by him. And Lord, if we don't yet trust and follow Jesus, we pray that you might bring us to that point where we hand our lives over to him as our king so that we might be free and spared your judgment so we might look forward to life with you in all eternity, so we might live with confidence, knowing that our future is secure in him. And Lord, we do pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.